Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that I wrote about the Squamish First Nation in Vancouver, Canada, pursuing an ambitious new development project within the city, and the importance of innovation and openness in a democracy. Yeah, so I didn't really know much about this until you sort of picked up on the headline and started writing about it. it well, was... also thanks to Darrell Owens, who tweeted about it last week. It's where I first heard of the story, and then I just did some digging on my own and learned a lot more. But he's a good guy to follow on Twitter if, if the story is interesting to you. But... Hey, follow those Yimbies. Yeah, yeah. All right. But I thought it was a really interesting, a really interesting story for, for a lot of reasons. It's multifaceted. So... Just to start, I was wondering, maybe a little more detail, what's going on? What are some obstacles, maybe, to to this project? Because it seems very ambitious, very hard to get done under normal circumstances. So, you know, you talk about the lack of regulation within Indigenous peoples' reservations, and that has one effect, but, you know, sort of, maybe what are some obstacles? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly an advantage, being free from local zoning, regulations, and things like that. Now, That said, I sort of leaned into some of the ambitions of the project because I thought that it was important sort of to to go with that and, you know, talk Mm -hmm. about the lessons that it shows and we'll see how it pans out. But while they are free from local regulations, they do have to enter into some sort of agreement with the city because the city is going to be the one providing emergency services and things Mm -hmm. like this. And they're also going to have to tap into city infrastructure like sewers. So... That's a place where the city of Vancouver is going to have some bargaining power, right? And so some features of the project might change here and there, but they've got probably better odds dealing with the Vancouver City Council, though there are some uh, opponents of the project, of aspects of the project, like I highlighted one one city council member who took issue with the level of parking availability Mm -hmm. in, in the development project that was planned. But they'll probably have better odds with Vancouver City Council than with, say, local zoning commissions. Right, right? that's true. Which are going to tend to be much more aggressively against new development, particularly the level of density and the size of these towers, which are the tallest one, is going to be, if it's completed to the spec that it's planned, will be the third tallest building in Vancouver. So these are really, really big developments, really big towers, very high density. So that would be impossible to get through a local zoning commission. Right. Now, while the city of Vancouver does have some bargaining power, they got better chances. It is a matter of bargaining. So it's a better situation to be in than being wholly sort of controlled by local powers. There's a lot of, there's a lot of autonomy in this situation. Right. So one challenge that comes out of that, I just am thinking about, um, which we, California's uh, Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill Mm -hmm. 10, which we previously covered, which would allow for not this ambitious of a a project, but sort of what we would think of as like gentle upzoning. It was a state law, right, that made it possible to build more units on on lots previously zoned for single family homes and to allow city governments, if they chose to, to upzone to uh, 10 unit buildings in job rich centers and, and in places near public transportation. Yeah. 
And the Los Angeles City Council passed a resolution, something like 13 to 2 or maybe 14 to 1, overwhelming majority yeah. against both. And in the case of SB 9, there's nothing they can do. It's just a resolution. But in the case of SB 10, SB 10 allows local governments to zone for 10 unit buildings. And basically they increase the density right, that right. SB, that from the baseline that SB 9 introduces. Right. But a city council has no obligation in the case of right. SB 10 to uh, actually enact right that that policy right. it's just an option that they're right. being provided right. and so you do see these I, I don't know why there are these people on i mean i, I do know why i can ex- i mean it's it's the, we'll get into right the property owning nimby single family home people right. are there are important constituencies and so these city council people i don't want to say they're in their pockets because it's not it's not it may to some extent be about donations but it's also just about very powerful constituencies yeah. that are opposed to these yeah. changes and so you get these city councils which are effectively beholden to people, NIMBYs who are against, uh, if you haven't heard this before, didn't read our past article on this, NIMBY means not in my backyard, they're effectively beholden to these people. And so it's very, right. it's, it's, it's unfortunate to see that, right, even when you get this innovation, either at the state level in California, or by the Squamish Nation in Vancouver on their on their reservation on the land that they govern, you know, that they have sovereign rights over, right. it's very unfortunate that you see local institutions getting in the way like this. Right. So, you know, there are some obstacles there. They're in a better position than any sort of private development. And besides that, you talk about constituency and public optics and things like this. Right. And it's undeniable that the public optics of this are more favorable to the Squamish than uh, general pro-development legislation, which people can very easily make some argument about how it's right. going to go all into the wallets of private developers and the rich people. And you know, I think that that is a short-sighted view of of pro-development policies, but the optics are better. So there are some favorable things there, but other problems are, I talk about how they have this low level of parking, which is supposed to, which is designed to facilitate a greater reliance on public transit and bicycling. Now, the trouble with that is once again, this development, while it takes place on Squamish land, takes place within the context of the greater city of Vancouver. Right. And things like the feasibility of bicycling and the feasibility of reliance on public transit are very much reliant on the the infrastructure of the greater city of Vancouver. And there have been some critics have pointed out that that this is an area that isn't particularly well serviced by public transit right now. And so, you know, not having very much parking for 6,000 residential units. I think it's parking for like, there's like going to be 600, something like that. Right. So like 10% mm. of the residential units equivalent in, in, in parking places for cars, for bikes, there's tons, but for cars, there's about 10% the number of residential units. So people have been saying, you know, great ideal, but you know, it's, not gonna not gonna work out now i think the argument there is you've got to try to force the hand of local infrastructure to accommodate to an enormous if this development turns out to be as enormous as it's planned you know that's a big weight pushing in the direction of right improve the public transit system and improve bike infrastructure and things like this but it is going to be a challenge for them to attract residents until or unless those changes do start to happen at least 
with that area, better servicing to right. that area with public transit in particular. Right. So those are a couple of the hurdles that are going to be faced. And I don't touch on those a lot in the article because, you know, it's a it's a short piece. I don't have time to get into all the if ands and buts, which is why we sit down and do these extended conversations. But also because I thought it was important to sort of deal with it on its own terms right. and, talk, and explain sort of how it shows that sometimes the sort of innovative ideas that we need to drive our societies to deal with a changing future are going to come from places that have less established interests in the maintenance of the status quo. And this gets into what you were saying about, about NIMBYs and these very powerful constituents are mostly people who own property, right? Mm-hmm. And have an interest in maintaining the status quo, particularly or especially because if population keeps growing, right, which it will, no new housing gets developed, well, then you get a housing shortage. Right. Property values go up. If you own property, that's good for you. It's bad for everyone else that doesn't own property or is trying to move into the city, but it's great for you, right? So, I mean, you essentially, I mean, just to put that in slightly, in a little bit more economic terms, it's like an artificial scarcity that you get to impose. Whether or not every single, you know, single family homeowner knows what they're doing, essentially it's imposing an artificial scarcity through government regulation onto other people, which allows you to basically jack up your housing prices and benefit enormously because the theory also runs that if you increase density, the price of any individual home is going to go down. And that is, that's probably true, but I think also still like no contest, a social good for the people who need yeah. it most, yeah. um, which is most people because it is incredibly hard to own homes right now in, in, in Canada as well as the United States. Yeah. And I just want to deal with this sort of common objection that we see right here because it's I think it's an appropriate place to deal with it. You see it even from progressive or self-identified progressive voices. Like there was some controversy on Twitter a little while ago about this Twitch streamer, Hassan Abi, who's a leftist Twitch streamer who, you know, has made millions and millions of dollars off of his Twitch streams and just bought a multi-million dollar home in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. And very shortly after buying this home, he made some critical remarks about SB 9 and 10, these legislative efforts to upzone areas, increase housing mm-hmm. supply, uh, pro-development policies. And people were saying, wow, dude, you buy a home and like within days, the leftist becomes the anti-housing guy or the, the pro-property owner, right. property landowning class guy. And his response and the response of his progressive supporters was basically like, this is the money for this upzoning and these new developments are going to go to wealthy people, right? The way he put it was it's going to let homeowners make an Airbnb out of their garage and make more money off of their already existing wealth Mm -hmm. that they have in property ownership. Right. Now, the trouble with this is that these people's wealth is going to increase just the same if you limit the housing supply, right? right? But if you increase housing supply over time, if you keep up zoning, right? The initially the money might go into the hands of those few developers who get in. But if you upzone enough and property developers will tell you this, they don't want lots of upzoning. They only want a little bit because it means they can get in, make a quick buck, right? And the market remains constrained. I I feel like I'm not doing a great job explaining this. Let me say it this way. If you have a scarcity of housing and you upzone 
a little bit, increase the housing supply a little bit, allow for a little bit of increased housing development. Right. A few people will come in, well-connected, well-established, very wealthy people will come in, do these housing developments. And because there's such a housing scarcity, it'll fill up quickly. They can charge pretty much whatever they want. Right. And they'll make a lot of money. Now, if you upzone a lot at once, way beyond what you need to, theoretically, just to meet the scarcity of housing or the housing demand, Mm -hmm. then you introduce competition into the housing market. And now these developers actually have to compete to lower their prices because people have options to choose where they want to live. Right. So that's the ideal scenario. You upzone enough such that these private developers don't just get a massive windfall without being competitive in their pricing. Cause then you're not really going to solve the pricing issue. You're just going to add a little bit more housing to the mix, right? which is good, but it to actually solve the problem, you, you need, need a to, lot. You need a lot. You need a lot. So that's just one of those counter arguments. It's sort of, I think predicated on a slight misunderstanding of the problem and the proposed solution mm-hmm that I think is, is worth dealing with. Maybe, you know, maybe that's too in the weeds, but I think it's important. No, I think that's, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, that sort of also flows to the next challenge or next thing that I think, you know, it's, it's worth discussing, which is, you know, I think I personally identify as a pretty progressive guy. I think you do as well. And so, you know, generally progressives are associated with stricter regulations on the market economy, more government structure of the market economy to provide for those who are typically less able to advocate for themselves or have been systemically pushed down by those who own property or those who are privileged. And I don't think that it's, I think, It is true that in a lot of cases, you know, there is a benefit to the government structuring the economy, but at least for my sense of sort of left liberal progressivism is that what we want to do or what the role of government is, is structuring the economy in such a way that it can be open and competitive in a way that is accessible to people, right? I mean, the argument goes that, oh, we don't need any government regulation whatsoever to increase competition. That strikes me as false. I think you need the government to structure the economy in such a way so that it can be competitive. And in this case, by adopting policies which can increase the supply of housing, you are actually making it more open and accessible right. to those people who are, are who have historically been denied the ability to build wealth through housing or decent rents to you know actually sustain themselves and i think that that's right i think in that case laxer regulation is actually better i think it should be paired with affordable housing measures by local yeah. governments or by the state it, government th- by the federal government but i do think that there's a there's a significant victory to be won in this case actually by loosening regulation i think yeah it's either loosening or sometimes it's not just necessarily laxer regulations it's smarter regulations right that's a good and point. i think that just to sum up if you're if you're interested in the conversation we're having, you should go listen to one of our early bird's eye episodes on small government and liberal democracy. It's come up in a few recent articles. There's a lot of important themes that we discuss in that article, and this is one of them about what does regulation do? Should Does no regulation equal full competition and full freedom? It turns out no, because if you have no regulations, just to summarize a little bit what we talked about in that, in that episode, it turns out if you have no regulations, then the first people to make some money can then leverage their money 
to corner markets and create abusive, non-competitive, monopolistic systems. Right. Pretty simple stuff. So no regulations is not the way. And I think part of my point of Estonia was pointing to smarter regulations can create a more competitive society and economy. And I think Harry started that off by talking about how, you know, he's progressive. I'm pretty progressive too. But the thing is, you don't have to be like a progressive to recognize this. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were to have a conversation about who are the fathers of modern neoliberal or conservative economics, one of the big names you'd hit upon is the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek. And if you read his book, The Constitution of Liberty, this dude is saying that you need government regulation to ensure that the market remains competitive because the end of both liberal democratic politics mm -hmm. and liberal economics is to have a competitive system in which people, the constituents, the voters, the consumers get to vote either with a ballot or with their dollar for who has the best service, right. who's going to do the best thing for them. Right. right. And so the more competitive situation you have, the lower your prices are going to be, the better your services are going to be, the, the, the better your elected representatives are going to behave because they face stiff competition. Now, that's a problem with the two-party system as well, as we talked about in another recent bird's eye. But I just think that's an important thing to point out is that it's not just purely a progressive idea that regulations can be helpful. In fact, you can pursue government regulation for sort of traditionally thought of as conservative goals. Right. Which is a, a quote unquote free market. But I think the trouble is that the notion of the free market in the 80s was in many ways bastardized and misappropriated by, by in my opinion, malicious or short-sighted actors. Right. But anyways, like I just did earlier, I've once again gotten us very far into no, the no, weeds. No, no, no. I don't think we're in the weeds. I think we're, I think we're sort of teasing out an important theoretical aspect of, of these debates, which is, you know, what are the ends of government? What should, what, what is the role of government? And I think it is, yeah. it's crucial to think of, I and mean, we talked about this in this past and that long ago episode, bird's eye episode on small government, right? Is that you absolutely need institutions which can effectively and at times forcefully structure the economy such that it actually can be competitive. Yeah. And I think maybe a really succinct way of saying this is the role of the government is not simply to allow for freedom, but to protect and ensure freedom, right? both in the marketplace and in politics. And sometimes that will entail the government providing programs because the market does not do so efficiently, right? right. I mean, that is all that is going to be the case. I mean, right. that is, I mean, maybe conservatives will disagree with me here. I know they will, but that I think that there are certain things which, for example, I'm not saying necessarily that a national healthcare system is the best route, but within the realm of healthcare, there is clearly any successful healthcare system, not the United States, which has an atrocious healthcare system, no matter how you look at it, what? but <laughs> but good quality healthcare systems require the hand of government to ensure that the the worse off are not made permanently worse off or thrown into poverty or, or you know landed with um, tens of thousands of dollars in hospital bills which is what happens in the united states so i think that right there's there are these areas where that where you know government intervention is crucial but it is true i think that in order to have a seamless and effective um, and competitive market system, you actually do need the government to structure it so that it will be that way instead of right. allowing, because power will be consolidated in somebody's hands, right? And, Unless and, someone prevents them from consolidating it. Right.
Right. And so just simple. Oh, right. Exactly. So I think that that's very important to know. And I think it's, that, that it's it's like checks and balances, but instead of between the branches of government, it's between the government and the economy. Right. And yeah, that's the, a good way of thinking. An, of it. an interesting way of thinking about it. We yeah. have these different branches of the government that prevent the different branches from gaining too much power, right? And in the case of the economy, the purpose of the government is to act as a check and balance against the consolidation of power by any one or few specific actors, right? Which would be to the detriment of everyone. Right. And to bring it back to the, the discussion of housing, right? Yes. That group, that constituency is going to be, you can get this very powerful constituency. It's not necessarily, you know, firmly united nationwide, but you do get homeowners associations and, and zoning boards and yeah. stuff like this, which are dominated by people who are in favor of continuing, you know, suburban single family home ownership as the, as the standard to which we should all aspire, except that that's, that is not easily distributed to everyone and it's it's, it's not an, environmentally it's unsustainable friendly. both in terms of population and the environment right it's it's an impossible dream right and it, and yeah so i think that that you know to bring that home right you do want this competitive and accessible market so that any person who wants to move to a city where opportunity lies and to pursue their dreams can do so without fearing that they're going to be met with exorbitant costs and that i think is is key that's all for today if you enjoyed, please consider subscribing to the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new episode of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment on the article we just discussed, there's also a link in the show notes to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.